0: Welcome to Making Sense of Martech, the podcast about, well, hmm, making sense of Martech. I'm your host, Juan Mendoza. Today, I am joined by Eric Sufert uh, to talk about his thesis slash catchphrase, everything is an ad network. Eric is a successful entrepreneur, he's an investor, he's a media founder um, who is focused on the intersection of mobile apps and ad tech. Now Eric works has worked a number of ad tech roles in Europe, which led him to founding and exiting an analytics platform uh, for mobile developers called Agamemnon. Um, he is now investing in companies in the ad tech space with uh, Heracles Capital and runs a the deeply respected and always interesting mobile dev memo. I'm a massive fan of his work, particularly a mobile dev memo. Um, in this episode, we talk about Ad tech branching out into all different kinds of new commerce, retail, um, and platform media channels. Uh, Europe's role in the development of mobile apps and gaming. What will happen uh, to the web if Eric's catchphrase, everything is an ad network, becomes a reality? Privacy and the threat of walled gardens. Whether or not programmatic has a future. Uh, media power laws and the 1% of ad networks, among many other topics. And now I'm very excited to bring you Eric Sufret. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing well, Juan. How are you doing? Thank you for having me today. I'm doing well. It's currently uh, first thing in the morning for me, and and it looks like you're winding up for the day. Uh, But I am very excited to have you on the call because you're a bit of a triple threat. You know, you're singing, dancing, acting. You do a lot of different things. You're a tech founder. Now you're an investor and you operate a really successful uh, media company, which is uh, Mobile Dev Memo. Um, I want to ask you, uh, just to kick us off, which role do you hate the least?
1: Um, well, uh, I don't really hate any of them. Um, (laughs) so I'll, let me just flip that around and which, which do I like the, the most? Um, that's a good question. So I, you know, I, I founded a company and sold it, but I haven't, uh, I don't, I'm not, you know. Uh, what I would consider like a serial entrepreneur I mean you, you meet a lot of entrepreneurs where that's all they could do right um, yeah. you, you could not see them possibly ever being employed or uh, working for someone else and and, and sometimes I think that's uh, <laughs> that's the result of like a character flaw I, I think it's not necessarily a good thing right <laughs> if some if someone's just like sort of incapable of holding a job or you know uh, of 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 successfully being employed that's it's not necessarily a good thing, um, but, but you know, you meet people that that fit that prototype where they just could not function in a, in a job, in a, in a sort of like, I I don't even want to say corporate environment because, you know, startups aren't that, but they, they just could not function in a setting where they had a very specific, um, you know, uh, uh, slate of things that they had to do in a very uh, prescribed way, right? You meet people like that, and and I'm not. I don't. I don't think I fit that profile. I I could have a job. I just don't. <laughs> but I could if I <laughs> if, if 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 there was one yeah. that was really uh, appealing or, or just you know um kind of uh, uh you know was it was a match for my personality or, or my interests. I I could I could be employed at some point. I'm just not. Um, I'm self employed. I I run a fund called Harry Place Capital. Um. I, I do, you know, a, a reasonable amount of consulting. I, I have uh, an in-house role at a company called Fabulous, which is a health and wellness uh, app developer. And I write my blog, Mobile Dev Memo, which has like a subscription component. So I, I make money from that. I, I do a smattering of things, but, but um, yeah, I don't have like a full-time you know job which is the only thing that I do I I don't I don't have that and 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 I, I don't know if I ever will but but it's not to say I couldn't right and there are people for for whom that is true um but but of those things which which do I like the most well I, I like them all equally well I think they all fit into like uh in into a day to day or or call it like a week to week uh that that I enjoy very much and so I think if if you if I would eliminate any one of those I'd be uh less fulfilled uh intellectually uh financially uh certainly but 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 I don't I don't think any one of them ranks above the other in terms of just how much i enjoy it, it they're they're all very different right so like running an investment fund that's that's a very specific type of work to do and, and a lot of that is uh staying abreast of trends um you know, uh, staying connected to your network and, and like sort of constantly uh, asking people what they're working on and, and being aware of moves that people are making, being, aw- being aware of things that have, have grabbed people's interests because those could be interesting investment theses or they could represent interesting investment theses. Um, you know, writing the blog is is very much a, 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 an exercise in doing research, Right. Um, and, you know, like the various, like, you know, kind of consulting projects I do, most of which are around transactions, right? I'll work with uh, an institutional investor when they're going to make an investment. Um, and, and that's, 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 uh, you know, a, an exercise in, um, evaluating the commercial potential of, of companies and trying to determine how they fit into the landscape. So so all these things kind of fit together and they're almost like reinforcing of each other, right? I think I'd be a worse off investor if I didn't run mobile dev memo, because, Mobile dev memo requires me to stay uh, at the very sort of like bleeding edge frontier of what's happening in the mobile ecosystem. And I think I'd be a worse writer if I wasn't investing because, um, you know, investing requires me to sort of like dive deep on um, on, on, uh, on emergent trends and and, and kind of determine how, how those will fit into the emerging landscape. So I think all of these things are sort of like reinforce each other and they fit very nicely into my day to day.
0: Yeah, it's a, it is impressive. I mean, you know, even on, on my background, you know, we I run multiple projects, multiple media products, you know, and juggling all the plates sometimes can be extremely frustrating, but sometimes it can be really rewarding. As you say, if you work on the right things, they should compound on in, in on each other, right? The media work and the research fuels the investment theses. The investment theses gives you the impetus to write and to continue to do that research. And then you're growing an audience. And then obviously that's deal flow and a few other, yeah. other opportunities in terms of consulting and, and other work as well. So, you know, it, it sounds like you've created this virtuous cycle. How many years have you been now in this? And, you know, how do you stay, I guess, excited about it and, and you know, enthusiastic about the work and to keep um, that cycle going?
1: Well, I don't, you know, there's no, there's, there's no plan B here. <laughs> so uh, I stay excited about it because I need to pay my you know mortgage um, and, and feed my children. <laughs> <laughs> uh but i i mean so it's it's it's, it's you talk about the feedback loop because the virtuous cycle because that was yeah. like the headline slide in my deck when i was raising the fund it was like look these mm. things these things that i do again like they support each other and so in writing the blog i reach a lot of people and establish myself as you know a I hate the term thought leader but but as someone who's knowledgeable about the space and and if i'm establishing myself as someone who's knowledgeable about the space when someone is building a company that you know exists in that space they they probably would like to raise money for me because hopefully they see that as smart money they see that as as informed money and and as money that could also bring uh you know additional uh, uh contours of value add beyond just you know the cash and so um, and then, you know, as an investor, I work with these companies and, and, and they're sort of like, you know, as most startups are operating at the at the kind of, you know, the sort of uh, that intersection of like uh, what's possible now and, and what the market needs to sort of thrive in the next six months to, to five years or whatever it is, whatever the timeline is. And so that gives me new knowledge to write about. Right, not that I'm writing about the companies, but I'm writing about the problem space that they're working in. Right, so so these two things really do support each other, and then you know the consulting piece is just is is just interesting, and and that's that's more like I I I see it as like explore and exploit the the consulting piece is like exploiting my knowledge, ex, ex, taking the knowledge that I have and making money from it. Right, and then you yeah, know yeah. the the investing piece and 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 the. Uh, the writing piece is more like exploring. It's exploring the market, exploring trends that I that I see taking root, and and trying to project out how they'll, um, you know, how, how they'll they'll sort of like come to fruition at some point in the future. So so they are really mutually reinforcing, and, and that was a that was the big thesis in my deck, which I used to to raise the fund.
0: Yeah, and you know, the, 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 I think my framework for thinking about this virtuous cycle or this way in which you use these different compounding business models on each other is I think about it. The center of it is trust. You know, it's a it's a trust leveraging trust exercise because writing the content, building that authority voice in the the mobile development ad tech space, you know that leverages trust. You know, I often I'm, I'm assuming that you probably have a similar experience. Is that? when you talk to people they feel like they already know you because they've read several of your articles mm. or they've heard you on a podcast and so you've already opened so many doors there just by being in people's inboxes and being online and active across i know you're very active across across twitter and so you know it's it's interesting to hear you sort of sketch that out as a as a methodology to build more trust um, with your industry, but also with your um, your portfolio, and then your consulting customers and your subscribers. You, and congrats on the I think your Mobile Dev Memo just converted to a paid subscription not too long ago. Was it six nine months ago when you converted m- Mobile Dev Memo to
1: paid? It was mid-April. So so what is that five oh, months okay. ago? Yeah, five months. Yeah. Ago, it, yeah. Well, so, but yeah. the the sort of the the hey I I, I know so much about you phenomenon is kind of a double edged sword. Yeah. right because i've had cases but you know i i i read, you know i write about topics that are somewhat controversial or, or contentious right and and i i don't i'm not like a polemicist right and i don't i don't think my writing is like tendentious and i try not to be i try to i try to be as objective yeah. as possible right I, I i mean i obviously have you know, everyone does everyone has biases and, and everyone is rooted you know intellectually to some kind of ideology I try to put that aside. You know, sometimes I'm probably not successful about that. But I've had people that have read my pieces on or like they'll, they'll read like one piece. And usually it's I'm blanking on the, the title. Um, Apple robbed the mob's bank. Yeah. Right. If someone <laughs> if if someone is only superficially familiar with my writing, it's because they read that one piece yeah and they drew they drew a lot of conclusions they extrapolated a lot of conclusions about me from that piece Mm. and that that piece probably was the most tendentious piece i've ever written right and so i'll have people that think i'm like anti-privacy or something like no i'm I'm familiar with your work you hate privacy you Mm. are a a data extraction maximalist You, you think that personal data um it should not be protected in any way whatsoever. And, yeah. and it's just fair game and all of it is fair game. And I'll say, no, I don't think that. And and here's all this other stuff I've written yeah. uh, that sort of like clarifies my position and it's much more fulsome yeah. represent, representation of my position. Well, th- I'm not familiar with that. I'm just, yeah. but I, you wrote that one thing one time. It's like, yes, fine. But you know, so people will have like, they will have wh- what they believe to be very ex- expansive understanding of me and my yes. position from writing one piece or from having read one piece yes right and so they will have like a sort of very strongly held opinion about me based on interacting with one piece of writing of mine and mm-hmm. that obviously there's a downside to that right like people yep. you know cast you know some like some very extreme judgments about me mm-hmm. based on one piece of writing but but that's not my fault. I mean anybody who would jump to conclusions like that is not being very intellectually rigorous but but yes I mean you could have just encountered one of my pieces of writing instantly put me into a box yeah. and you know dismissed everything anything else I'll ever say and I've had those kind of mm-hmm. um, encounters on Twitter but yeah, so like it, that it's 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 nice when you're preaching to the choir, and, and you know you meet people yeah. at a conference. And be like, oh man, I feel, and you know, I feel like I know you so well. And it, well, yeah. if you like what you've read, then yeah. that's the conclusion you come to. Yeah, it's. It's This
0: this common wisdom, I think it's a bit of a fallacy in the, the media world where, you know, Scott Galloway said this not too long ago on the Pivot podcast where he said, you know, if you're not causing a controversy, if you're not creating a, a group of haters that, you know, think badly of you or severely, you know, uh, disagree with your positions, then you're not doing anything right. You know, you're not right. building your audience big enough. And, you know, I, I take that with a grain of salt. I think that, you know, controversy, if you're not intentionally trying to start controversy, you know, like Scott Galloway is really famous for, you know, being very controversial on many points um, and very pr- and provocative as well. Um, and I would say that, you know, if you're after a sophisticated audience, uh, you know, mature people that are, you know, very well-developed in their career, they, they try and shy away from controversy. They don't like it, you know. That's my, my experience with the MarTech Weekly, you know. I'll write something and people say, their, their feedback would be, you know, that's too um, controversial. It's it's too hard one on one point. Another guy right. uh, that is uh, is obviously very big in this is uh, Ed Zitron. You know, he, he writes a lot about ad tech and he's very negative, very, very critical about ad tech. And often he takes a one side, I think. But I think this common wisdom that if you're not creating controversy, if you're not creating haters, you're not doing the right thing. I just think that, I don't think that's the right way to think about media. I think it should be as you're doing, you're actually serving a specific community of people and you're trying to give the best, most objective point of view on all the amazing things and and critical things that are happening in the space. You know, so it is a challenge. I mean, like walking that tightrope on, you don't want to unnecessarily create controversy, but you are going to get haters, but try not to strive for that. You know, (laughs) you know, social media thrives on controversy and conflict. And I try not to do that as much as possible, but it's a great point you raised. There is a dark side to that uh, media awareness, I guess. But um, I want to take a step back and and talk about your, uh, your background, your, your working background, your career. You know, you started your career in Europe Um, And you worked for several different companies in the space until founding your own. Um, And again, you founded that in Europe. And in our last conversation, you actually said that Helsinki was kind of functioning as the capital of mobile development and mobile gaming um, right in the early days of the Apple App Store and Android coming into market back then in the, the late or uh, the early 2010s. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, what? how do you see Europe's role in the global mobile development market? How do you see it? Are you still uh, very optimistic? Obviously, you're not in Europe anymore, but I, I mean, I'm curious as you see the Europe market for mobile development and ad tech.
1: So Helsinki. So I think it's really important to talk about the timeline here, right? So, yeah, App Store uh, found, you know, was was introduced to the world in 2008. IAPs in the App Store introduced to the world in 2009 in both uh, Google Play and the App Store. And so that was uh, that was a while ago. Um, Helsinki is where Nokia was based, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know, for for long before that, long before the App Store was even a sort of a a vision in, in Steve jobs brain or whoever's brain um, it Nokia existed in Helsinki and was the kind of like world leader in yeah. in I, it's not not smartphone but but cell phone production I guess Eric um, are, you,
0: are you telling me Eric that uh, S- Snake do you remember that old school game on the 3315 uh, yeah. well that was developed yeah. out of Helsinki I can imagine <laughs> that game was so virally like, can you imagine something similar today where it was the, like pre-installed on millions of phones, you know, or game, you know, became like a cultural icon because that's an interesting point you raised. like Nokia, um, or Nokia, as you pronounce it was, yeah, founded out of Europe, you know, and that pioneering mobile technologies for many years before Apple came along and Android. So yeah, it's a good point.
1: Well, so Snake, I think they they bought from some other oh, vendor. I don't think they, I don't think it was it was that that yeah. software was developed by Nokia. But, but but anyway, there was a deep concentration of people that had experience in uh, whatever call it human handheld technology interaction, right? And so it makes sense that that would be a hub of sorts, right? And so, but for mobile gaming, it it definitely was the the epicenter of sort of that vertical for a very long time. I mean, so you had Rovio that was founded in Helsinki. Uh, actually at Espo, and that's where Nokia was. Espo is like a suburb of Helsinki. Um, so Rovio was founded in Espo and 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 the the first company that I worked, the first gaming company that I worked for was called Digital Chocolate. That was um that wasn't founded in Helsinki, but basically Digital Chocolate had acquired a studio based in Helsinki, and that was kind of where a lot of the games were developed. They had studios kind of all over the world, but they had acquired a, a studio called Sumea which was founded by the people that went on to found Supercell, right? So when I joined Digital Chocolate, the the founders of Supercell had just left. They had left a couple months earlier to go found Supercell. But they were the founders of, those people were the founders of, or I think some of them were the founders of Sumeya, which was acquired by by uh, Digital Chocolate. But anyway, so, so Digital Chocolate really was like almost the... Uh, uh, I, want, I, I would call it like the training ground for a lot of the leaders in mobile gaming as it exists today, right? Many, many people were employed by digital Shock that went on to found successful gaming startups, um, not just in Helsinki, but sort of worldwide. And you had this, as because Nokia was based in Helsinki, there were a lot of people that just really deeply understood human cell phone interaction, like how cell phones could fit into into sort of like a, the the human sort of like social cultural existence, and I think that that you know once the, the the smartphone evolved out of that, then you just had a lot of people there who were who were who were ready to like sort of continue the evolution, and so but you had so again Rovio, uh, Supercell, you know both founded in, in in Helsinki, and 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 I think both of those companies um, did a lot to establish mobile gaming. As a, a sort of growth category, as 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 because because you have to remember, like in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I mean, people didn't, ever, no one, I, I think it was not a consensus opinion that mobile gaming would take off, that people would want to play games on their cell phone. If you think about like what, if you think about like the the form that gaming took at that point, it was console, it was console, it was PC console, right? And yeah. so the screen was too small, the, the, you know the graphics were far inferior, um, the latency was too great. And yeah. and and you know that just the controls were awkward, right? And so you know people sort of dismissed outright the idea that people would play games on their phone or on uh, mass, right? Like that that would be a, a large category. And it took I think Angry Birds to prove that.
0: There's some interesting um, examples of experiments in this space where Nokia did um, the N-Gage. Remember the N-Gage? It was kind of like a PlayStation Portable mobile phone, you know, landscape, you know, kind of like a Game Boy Advance PSP type situation. You know, it's it's interesting experiments before the iPhone came out of like that blend between. You must have been right in the middle of that. You know, how do you develop a game for N-Gage versus a landscape phone or a flip phone like the Motorola? You know, it's a really interesting sort of landscape of experimentation back then i can imagine
1: well so that was a little bit before my time so when i joined digital chocolate i want to say it was after grad school i think it was like 2011 got it and um you know the iphone was still not really considered like a gaming platform right so when what we were were building games we thought we were building games for what we thought was the next big growth platform for gaming which was facebook canvas and just and basically like flash and html5 and that was kind of short-lived right so Really what Facebook did with its uh, kind of treatment of Zynga or just treatment of games, but primarily Zynga was like, they pulled the rug out of that format of games, right? Oh. When they when they sort of, because yeah. the thing is yeah. gaming existed on Facebook only only as a result of like the benevolence of Facebook in terms of driving engagement through notifications. Yeah. If that had never been done, if, if Facebook had decided not to like promote games in that way because it was like very aggressive, right? People people thought that was virality, but it wasn't. It was like forced promotion or something. It was just it was just free media that they gave all these game companies. Because because yeah. if you would play a game, you would spam all your friends. Hey, this guy just you know harvested some corn in Farmville. As a result of that, like kind of gift of yeah. just sort of like unsolicited promotion that yeah. Facebook you know bestowed upon mostly Zynga, but a lot of other game companies that 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 allowed that format to take shape. But as soon as they stopped doing that, it just it just it just became like a desiccated wasteland. I mean, like like yeah. Canvas, like Facebook Canvas gaming basically died the yeah. day they cut off the fire hose of notifications that that is essentially provided distribution for those games. And so then all of these companies were like, okay, we yeah. have to shift. Where, where do we shift to? Uh, well, let's go. Let's just port our games to mobile. Let's port our games to the app store and and google play and keep in mind like i was talking about rovio and kind of paving the way for with angry birds paving the way for people to to understand that they could play games on their phone that was a paid game that, the freemium the freemium model hadn't really taken root right and so the freemium model was very prevalent on facebook canvas it was not at all prevalent on smartphones on on google play and and ios and so it was when Canvas gaming no longer was viable because Facebook basically cut off that distribution mechanism that these companies said, like, well, let's try to make this work on mobile. Let's see if we can take the freemium model and port it to mobile. And that's that started taking shape really around that same time that I joined Digital Chocolate. And that's that was part of the big initiative that I was was working on is like, let's port these games to mobile and see if we can get some traction on smartphones with the freemium model. It's um. It's, I never thought about it like that,
0: where, you know, Lord Zuckerberg used gaming as a, a growth experiment, really, to drive connections and, and virality and all of that within the Facebook ecosystem. And then he said, yeah, no, it's, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, he, he cut that off. And then it, like, it seems like there's been multiple waves, you know, so you had sort of the, the Nokia and the sort of the traditional mobile phone game development, you know, and and that space was a small industry in Europe. And right. then it, and then Facebook came, and then you had social gaming, which was one wave. And then the third wave was iOS and Android. I wonder mm-hmm. if there's more waves than that. But it seems like you know Europe had to ride all of those waves in a very short span of time—what, ten to fifteen years? You know, it's it's fascinating to see how much the industry actually pivoted across the different platforms and technologies that time. You know, must have been an amazing place to work and probably pretty stressful as well. <laughs> but um, but I can imagine just the the sheer amount of experimentation, trying things, trying to. Figure out the freemium model, which I know that you're a huge proponent of and you've done a lot of research and even written a book about. So, you know, there's there's so much in that. Um, but we could talk about the mobile gaming industry all day, and I would love to do that. But I want to get to your thesis. The thing that is really attracted to um your writing and your constant Twitter threads is your catchphrase. Everything is an ad work. It's hilarious, it's caught on in the ad tech space. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I think you've created a bit of a movement, Eric, which is which is cool to see. I mean, you know, because you're pointing out all of these. Really interesting examples of these platforms and these companies never getting into the media business, but all of a sudden they're getting into it. Um, but could you give us a bit of a landscape into how the ad industry is changing right now? What is this thesis? Everything is an ad network.
1: Yeah, so it's it's so I you know I published the, the piece "Everything is an Ad Network" in like November twenty one, I think. And it's funny because I feel like now we're, we're, we're kind of, ex- we're, we're witnessing the limit of everything being an ad network. I think we've, you know, everything was an ad network and everything was, you know, becoming an ad network. And now I think like that's, you know, there's like an S curve and now we're sort of like at the, maybe it's at the top, nearing the top of the S curve. So the idea there was that app tracking transparency, which was Apple's you know privacy policy on iOS, um, it's it disrupted the sort of free flow of data that was like kind of endemic to digital advertising, that allowed big ad platforms, walled gardens, right, to just to build very extensive behavioral profiles of their users through the transmission of data from their advertisers, right. So if I'm an advertiser, I'm advertising on Facebook, I'm advertising on Snap, I'm TikTok, whatever, uh, YouTube, I'm buying this, I'm buying the inventory. User clicks on my ad. Um, and then I have a pixel or I have an SDK embedded in my property. And what I want to do is I want to send, uh, notifications of any conversions that those users do back to the platform. Because if I do that, 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 platform's knowledge of those conversions will improve my campaign going forward. Right? So if I say, Hey, look, this user, you just sent me, they're a great user. They just bought some jeans or they bought some coins in my game then the platform says, okay, well, that's that's nice to know. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to mark that person down as being a purchaser of that thing, whatever it was. And then I'm going to take that knowledge and I'm going to look at that person and I'm going to sort of deconstruct them across a number of different, dimensions. And then I'll go look for other people that sort of match their profile based on that sort of like dimensionalized matrix. And then I'll send those people that sort of fit the same profile as that person that just converted. I'll send them your ads because I think they're a good fit based on the performance of, of this person. And not just any singular person, it's a groups of people, but but at a high level, this is kind of the, the 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 feedback loop. And also, by the way, I just learned something new about that individual that bought something from you. And so the next time Someone that's selling something similar to what you're selling wants to buy ads, I'll send that person to their ads. So basically they create these enormous data co-ops where they have behavioral profiles of of all these individual people and they could target ads to individuals, right? And so that was a very, very lucrative business. And that was uh, dominated digital advertising for a very long time. I wrote a piece in 2016 called Facebook and Google Own Our Eyeballs. And and the idea there was that I think the IAB and in conjunction with like PwC or something, had issued a, a, a study saying that like Facebook and Google were catching 89%, capturing 89% of all the growth in digital advertising in 2016. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. almost all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because they had built these machines that and that enabled these feedback loops. they were very different companies, right? They're not the same at all. Facebook is a very different advertising system than Google, but nonetheless, they had built these enormous like data harvesting machines that operated in that way. And so um you know, I, I, so when, when that free flow of data was disrupted, well, then it created the opportunity for it. So, so if, if third-party data and the ability, so the ability to capture third-party data rendered a company more powerful uh, with respect to its digital advertising apparatus, its digital, digital advertising uh, uh, platform, well, then losing that rendered the next best thing with something not quite as powerful, but still nonetheless powerful, which is first-party data. So if your ability to just collect a bunch of third-party data, the the magnitude of that ability placed you in the league table and in the sort of like prioritized ranked list of of these companies, well, then once once the ability to do that, once the ability to aggregate third-party data was sort of cut off, then the next sort of most valuable resource would have been first-party data. And so that allowed companies that had vast amounts of first party data to monetize it by layering ad networks on top of it right yeah. whereas that that it, 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 it was like it wasn't even competitive before because there's no if, if you would if you were able to sort of like insert yourself at the center of this vast advertising ecosystem and collect data from all the participants of course you'd have uh, you know you've, you'd have access to more data than any given company could on a first party basis but once you lose that ability, well, then companies get ranked or or they get prioritized in terms of their advertising effect just based on the size of their first-party data. And so what happened when ATT was rolled out and the ability to collect third-party data was like greatly diminished? Well, then all these companies that had vast amounts of first-party data recognized they could essentially monetize it by layering ad networks on top of it, right? And so that is everything is an ad network. So Facebook, well, I call Facebook the everything store for advertising. No matter what you were advertising, you could go to Facebook and they would find you relevant customers because they were collecting data from like the entirety of the web and the mobile app app ecosystem. (laughs) But once they couldn't do that, then what's the next best thing? It's going to a company that has a bunch of first party data that's contextually relevant for whatever you want to sell right? Mm-hmm. And so um, then, okay, it's like, well, Facebook won't have good data for cosmetics buyers anymore because they're not, um, they're not receiving that from all the mm-hmm. cosmetics advertisers anymore because they can't. So if I want to sell cosmetics, where do I go? I go to Ulta Beauty, which launched a retail media network, and they have the next best thing, which is something like 35 million uh, profiles of cosmetics buyers, right? And so I would go to the retail media network operated by whatever retailer... Uh, had uh, contextually relevant data for what I'm going to sell. So it fragmented the market based on contextual relevancy, right? Because there's no one singular hub that collects data about everything, but that allowed these companies to build these retail media networks because they had the data, right? Mm -hmm. So it basically just prioritized first-party data over the ability to collect third-party data. So that's the thesis behind everything is NAD network. Now, this idea, I, I feel like it's just uh, observably true. I mean, and, and you saw the explosion of retail media uh, networks over the last couple of years, I feel like a, we're reaching like a saturation point because the problem with that is there's only so many, you know, there's, there's an overhead cost to operating across like for any given, any given sort of like purveyor of advertising, there's an overhead cost. Right. And so I can't, you know, go from I'm only operating on Facebook. I'm an SMB that only operates on Facebook to I'm an SMB that now operates across 20 different networks. There's, you know, a tremendous amount of like analytical uh, effort that goes into managing any given network. Right. And then especially if you have different formats that require different creative sizes and, and the media types, you have different reporting APIs. Like every, every additional network just incurs additional overhead cost, Right. And so there's, there's a, there's a sort of like diminishing return on that. And then there's just, you know, companies that it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like we're just not, we, we're just not equipped to do that. Right. So, so having all of that be standardized was actually really, really efficient to go to just to, just a Facebook, which had all the data and they, could, yeah. you know, they had one API and their tools are actually like really easy to use. And they, and they, they had a bunch of, they had a bunch of what do you, what do you call it? Like machine learning assisted navigation. bidding types like mm. app event optimization and, and value optimization and now like advantage plus they had the capacity to build those types of things which, which are totally out of bounds for like a retail media network they won't ever yeah. be able to build that, yeah. that type of stuff <laughs> so there was like there was a level of efficiency that came with yeah. having all of that being concentrated but mm-hmm. you give all these companies the ability to just basically monetize an existing asset which is that first party data
0: yeah yeah and you know like i'm just going to count off like this is based partly on your research on all of their recently announced ad networks out there, right? So Kroger's, Macy's, Delivery Hero, 7-Eleven, Target, DoorDash, CVS Pharmacy, Etsy, Marriott Hotels, Activation Blizzard, yeah. Facebook Horizon, the metaverse space, Roblox, right. Reddit, um, Hulu, Xbox, Intuit, Zoom, Zinga. zinga has been around as an ad network for a long time, but they recently revamped a bunch of stuff. Pinterest, Roku, WordPress, The new Bing, Disney, Expedia, Instacart, Uber, Shopify, eBay, MasterCard, Amazon, Home Depot, Walmart, and finally Apple. You know, those are just uh, a small sampling of the greater picture of so many companies are building app networks. And I think you beautifully laid that out for us and all of the pressures that are feeding into this, but also the opportunity, which is a lot of these platforms, which are quite a few of them are actually in retail. Mm-hmm. and in e-commerce uh, a lot of them are mon- looking for new ways to monetize you know outside of right. the thin margins of selling retail products or running a marketplace and so you know you can see the incentive to build a platform so you can drive high high margin revenue however i think your point there around the the costs to manage and also deliver results, you know, like we've seen this with Netflix, you know, Netflix launched a, an ad network not too long ago, you know, in a cheaper tier and they've launched ads for the first time. And, you know, their first 12 mm-hmm. months have been pretty rocky, you know, they've grown their audience and, you know, they're getting there. But, you know, I, again, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I look at the growth of Walmart And Walmart have done this so well, uh, you know, in that, you know, over 2020 to 2021, they were the fastest, so from 2020 to 2021, they were fastest growing ad network just on revenue. So faster, fastest, faster growing than Amazon, Google, and Meta, you know, and that's a retail, Mm. traditional retail, you know, so there's, I feel like there's a 1% a power law here for, you know, these new retail media platforms and, and ad networks. And then there's kind of everyone else fighting for scraps, you know, do you see it like that? Do you see there's this power laws working out? I feel like there's the companies that own the line share of data that haven't gotten the ads yet, like the Apple and the Amazons and the WalMarts of the world. They'll be the real winners out of this thesis, which is the, everything's an ad network.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I think so. So to add a couple more to that list is Dollar General, Ulta Beauty, Lyft has, uh, and so I mean, there, you know, it's it's. Did you say Lowe's? I think you did. Uh, um, Lowe's, no, C- Lowe's isn't on my list. CVS, <laughs> yeah, uh, Yeah. But but you're, you're actually starting to see some of these like not perform that well, right? So to your point, like Netflix. You know, yeah. they came out of the gate um, asking for like, you know, this this uh, very, very sort of like, I would call them like extreme CPMs. And, and then, you know, they, they didn't really manage to get that and they couldn't, they couldn't fill all the inventory. And now the CPMs have come down and, um, you know, people want to know where the targeting tools are and where the measurement tools are. So, it's you know, it, I, I do think you, you probably will see that, that list um maybe not be whittled down but you'll see like a level of concentration at the, the high at the top end that effectively does like kill some of them off um yeah i mean but media is just like that in general right i mean media is just a winner takes all game you're always going to have like a hand it's always going to be like a an, an oligarchy right but but yeah I, I i my sense is you'll just just out of necessity i mean you know an advertiser can only work with so many networks and at you know and, and the thing is like there are, there's compounding value from the network side as, as their revenue grows, they're able to invest more in the tools that unlock more revenue, right? So just going back to the idea of like, well, Facebook had value optimization campaign strategy, right? Like, which to my mind is, it's, it's really like the highest form of advertising. It's, it's when you go in and you say, I am not going to give you a bid. I just want you to return $1.2 for every dollar I put in on this timeline. You, I, 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 bids are irrelevant to me. I just need to make a return on investment. And, and if you can sort of, if, if you can sort of meet that objective, then I will give you as much money as you want. Yeah. Right. And that, that really is the crux of performance advertising. It, you know, it, it, as a concept it's, it's, I don't necessarily have a budget. I don't, you know, on any give. I mean, of course you do just there, there's, re, re, you know, realistically you have constraints, but ideally I'm not even operating with a budget constraint, I am just spent, I'm I'm operating with a return constraint. And if I had unlimited money and there was unlimited impressions available to me, I would deploy all of it against them if I was getting $1.1 back for every dollar I got or whatever that number is, whatever that number needs to be. And the more scale I get, the lower it can be, right? The lower the margins can be. Um, And so just from an economic standpoint, Um, As these companies grow, they're able to invest more into those kind of tools that allow advertisers to see, you know, better yield as a result of like better targeting, different kinds of creative tools. Um, Then then they'll, you know, capture more of the market. And that's exactly what Facebook did. I mean, if you look at, you know, Facebook in the high ARPU regions, their growth capped out. I mean, it capped out like in 2018. Um, They actually had, you know, negative growth in like the uh, the you uh, can uh region at, at one point and then they're back on like you know modest you know uh, modest very very modest growth there but um what drove the revenue growth because that's where all the advertising is the vast majority of the advertising dollars go to the higher ARPU regions it, it was just getting more ARPU out of the users right and how did you do that you it, well because it's an advertising business that's that's it that's how they make money it's through better targeting it's better pairing of this ad and this person that's most likely to click on the ad and then make a purchase. Right. And so like, you know, I've, I've written, you know, a number of articles about this, but like, you know, I've talked about like how there's basically like four ways for an ad platform to grow revenue. Right. Um, You know, there's, let me pull it up. So I don't, I don't forget. So you can increase (laughs) ad load. Yeah. Uh, right, you can increase ad loads. You just show, show more ads per minute of engagement or whatever. So, well, yeah, that should increase. That should increase revenue. The only problem with that is it could also increase churn. Right, you could have like it could have you know negative consequences because when people their content experience has more ads in it, well, then they're they're more likely to churn out. Right, you can increase reach or just have more users. Uh, you'd be showing more ads because there's more users on your service. Well, that's great, but what happens when you're Facebook and you've basically saturated the world? that's not really possible <laughs> in the high arpu regions right um you have uh, more the babies. that's you just, the solution <laughs> right or you know we just we impact the birth rate uh, the yeah. third is that you can increase time spent right so if i'm increasing time spent i don't need to increase ad load to increase the number of ad exposures because people are just spending more time on site well that's great but that's a product problem Right, yeah. and that's not easy to do. If you could do that, you probably would have wanted to do that. Of course, increasing engagement is always an objective, right? And then, the, and then, the last one is increase the value generated by ads. So you make the targeting better, you make the ads more relevant to users, so they're more likely to click on them. Right mm-hmm. now, when you know with ATT, what you've seen is a lot of these platforms they're employing like multi-faceted strategies that try to do all of these. Right, mm-hmm. so you know Facebook, you know, look at YouTube. Yeah. You know, just just anecdotally, if you watch YouTube now. It, is, it has noticeably more and longer ads in it than it did three years ago, right? right. I think that's a direct consequence that, of ATT, yeah. right? Yes. Um, and then they were even playing around with like non-skippable minute-long ads on, on, uh, on, the, on the CTP version. Um, increased reach, well, they all want to do that, but you know, there's just limits to how many human beings there are. Increasing time spent on site, well, that's the, that's the entire purpose of reels and YouTube shorts and all the short-form video stuff. It's like, well, we can show them this kind of content that's like very, very snackable, but also like quite addictive, right? And that's exactly what's happened, right? Yeah. With with reels. And, and Facebook talks about it every or meta talks about it every quarter. They're increasing time spent because they're they've gotten really good at the curation part, at the recommendation engine for reels. Like, so if you think about that recommendation engine, it's like, I'm gonna show you the ad that you're most likely to click on. Well, you can pretty easily like retrofit that. And it's you know, it's it's not all the same infrastructure, but you could take that same. Uh, concept you can apply it to con- you know to content which already they already had that they already ranked content based on um you know the ex- the sort of like expected likely the likelihood of engaging with it you take that recommendation system you just apply it to short form video and then you just make it so that they can sort of like endlessly scroll through short form video and be curating it in real time based on, you know, your sort of like interaction history that has done that, that has increased time spent on site. And that's exactly what YouTube has done with shorts too, right? And so like, if you look at these platforms and how they're adapting to this, um, yeah. they're doing all four of these things. And so I think that's also part of that S curve, right? Mm. So when, you know, when, when, when Meta and YouTube and Snap, when they were caught flat footed, right? They just lost a lot of market share, but now that sort of like they've, they've figured out the strategy to react to this. And they're able to do all of these things: increase ad load, increase reach, increase time spent on site, and partially increase the value generated by ads through like what they call like the AI uh, stuff. I think really what they've done is is less increasing the value generated by ads because the targeting will never get will, will never be as good as it was. There's just no way. You just don't have the data. Um, now they're 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 sort of scratching at that um, at the at the margins with things like you know the revamped AEM and CAPI and stuff like that, but it'll never be as good. I mean, they basically had like they basically had like unfettered access to like all the data that was being transmitted by every website and every app. You're never going back to that. So for the most part, like increasing the value generated by ads, I think what they're doing with like Advantage Plus is just re- reducing the waste, reducing the human error and reducing the wastage. But increasing time spent on site is a big part of that strategy, right? And so the, you know all these big platforms are doing that and the ones that are successful, you've seen the success take shape. I mean, you've seen that with, with Meta and you just saw it last quarter. Meta was two quarters ago, Google was this quarter. And some of the platforms haven't been able to do it. I don't think Snap has been able to do it, right? Uh-huh. And, and Pinterest- Twitter certainly sort of hasn't stronger. been able to do it. <laughs> Twitter, yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's we'll talk about ad load increases. I mean, yeah. you know, if they don't know by this point in time that I'm not clicking on a Cheech and Chong CBD gummy, then, then they're <laughs> never going to know.
0: Well, that's it. You know, there's there's a point here about the fragmentation of this shift to everything is an ad network, which is these walled gardens, first party data rich environments. And you you mentioned the fragmentation, which I think is an important point. You know, I want to read you a quote from IPG Media Brands a couple months ago. They they launched what they call a unified retail media solution dedicated business unit, they say, with 82% of CMOs finding standardization across retail media platforms a significant challenge, IPG Media Brands aims to bring transparency and trust to the space powered by a unique tech platform focusing on unified audience measurement, optimization, and intelligence. The solution empowers brands with a holistic view of their performance, automated cross-retail cross activation, optimization, and maximizing sales and profitability. So what's fascinating about this shift, and I think you, this point that you bring out, which is the value in a lot of media is that one platform one interface and scalable in, into an infinity in terms of you know better mm. margins and then you've got this aggregation of most of the world's data or the internet data anyway now with retail media and, you know, walled gardens and all these fragmentation, each platform has its own rules, its own CPMs, right. its own budgets, its own everything. Look, there's agencies like IPG media brands actually trying to step in and go, well, you know, for our customers, we can offer a portfolio of retail media platforms um, under the one framework or one structure, you know, and it's, I think it's early days to see if the agency end of this will be, I guess the the point of aggregation, if you'd want to call it that, but yeah to your point i mean there's been a lot of advantages with meta and google and these large platforms just having a lot of the data it makes it so much more scalable and efficient for advertisers
1: well it's, yeah and the data and i mean you know there's 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 obvious you know concerns with that too um, i'm not you know again i'm not saying it's like a, it's a good thing that they had like you know i talked about the unfettered access to all yeah. the data transmitted basically on the internet well yeah there's 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 concerns with that i don't i don't of think course, that was yeah. necessarily like you know yeah. the 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 best outcome but, but yeah, it, the, the API standards, um, the, the the ad, f- the creative formats, like all those things, yes. they they vary, and, and partially, you know, just they, by necessity. I mean, like if you know, my app just has this screen real estate. Well, then an ad of you know just needs to be a certain size to fit into that. It's not like it's not they want to create this very fragmented. Landscape of, of creative formats, for instance, but it's just it's just a, a function of well, these apps are different and they're they're shaped differently. Um, but the other thing is like it's just the 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 measurement capabilities and the targeting capabilities and then the optimization capabilities, right? So like a lot of these, and so the thing is like the, the inability to unify that is, is actually like really confounding for a marketer, right? So like if I'm buying on CPM on one platform and I'm buying on CPA, some type of CPA on another platform, and you know, that's that muddies the analysis right and you you'd prefer for all of that to be unified so let's say i'm an app i want to buy i want to buy everything on the basis of like uh you know on on essentially like roi right but but well you know let's say even just like cpi like cost per install well like not every not every platform even offers that so if one one offers cpm and i've i've got to go you know i've got to build my own sort of like uh, system for estimating how many installs that drove. Cause it, you know, and I've got SK Ad network on iOS, but that's not in real time. And there's, you know, th- there's just, a, you- you'd prefer for all of that to be unified. And, and the thing is like, and I think we're Facebook benefits now. And, and the, the bigger, and to your point about the consolidation and, 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 you know, the, the, the sort of like, um, the, the top end of the, the food chain, you know, just, just have, having a higher concentration, market shares, if I'm, if I have to build tech, Right. What, where are you going to want to invest that money into in the company that takes 2% of your budget? Let's say, let's say it costs the same. It costs the same for me to build an API integration. Or it costs the same for me to build some sort of like analytics reporting tool or, uh, or some sort of like uh, statistical a uh, tool to estimate whatever I really care about, whatever I'm really trying to optimize for, like purchases or whatever registrations. It takes the same amount of effort for me to build that for the company that spent seventy percent of my budget on, and the company that built two percent of my budget. Why don't I just take that two percent and give it to the seventy, and I only have to build the thing once, right? Yeah. right? So that's that's the that, I mean that's just that's just like the the uh, you know the, the the reality for advertisers. It's like look, this is infrastructure stuff. This costs money. I, I it, t- it takes resources. And yeah, and, and the thing is like Snap and Pinterest have been talking about this. Like there is a cost that they, they've talked about, it, like the adoption curve. It's yeah. like they just have to get in line. I'm If I'm going to build a cappy um, mechanism, well, I'm probably going to start with Facebook because that's taking up a lot more of my budget than Snap or Pinterest is. And so, you know, Pinterest, Snap, I'll build it for you eventually, but you're not first in line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, uh, it, it's the, I think
0: there's, there's another angle on this, which is, you know, the trade desk continuing to build infrastructure for retail media. I mean, uh, when I was at ProGio, actually, that exchange had a conversation with the folks at Macy's and the Trade Desk and they talked about their partnership. They said, oh, you know, we looked at Walmart we're like, they're building a lot of their tech in-house on their ad network. And they said, we ain't got the resources to do that. We, you know, we're not Mm -hmm. really set up and as a tech company to build that scalable infrastructure. So they brought in um, the Trade Desk, you know, and Trade Desk is, they're promoting their UID 2.0 and, you know, they're trying to build that open format across these, uh, potentially these walled gardens or first party data, you know, so, you know, you're starting to see people shift in, you know, you see folks like Lotome, also the Trade Desk, they're getting into CDPs and first party data technology. Both of them have a um, a, a ad tech focused CDP. So, you know, I, I would say that across the industry, you're seeing a few different shifts. The agencies are trying to consolidate. These fragmented channels, you're seeing the tech vendors trying to get more first-party data into their systems, offering things like UID 2.0 and the infrastructure for um, some of these ad tech networks as well. You know, it's it's a fascinating time, I think. It almost feels like, to me, like the early days of the web, you know, before we had these massive platforms. It's almost like a return to the fragmentation of the web before you had Google and Meta, and et cetera, so sort of really dominate the ad tech landscape. And so it's exciting, but it's also very frustrating. And there's a lot of things that still need to be built and figured out over time. But, um, but I wanted to finish up, um, Eric, because I know we're out of time, but what are you optimistic about right now in terms of the future of mobile gaming, mobile development and ad tech? Like, what are you looking at? And you're like, this is
1: really exciting. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about a lot of stuff, right? So I think uh, I wrote this piece a while back called uh, Flying Blind, right? And so I talked about, um, you know, there's, there's this, this, this example. There's this story that I uh, that the the piece starts off with. There's, I'm blanking on the guy's name. I need to look this up. But there's a guy, a pilot, right? I think he was, in, he was an army or he's an air force pilot, and he was the first ever person to fly a plane without instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Um, he he took off and you know you know flew for some time and then landed using only the instruments. Sorry, he he was the first pilot to fly only using instrumentation on a flight path basically so he took off you know flew his route landed and he actually had put a hood over the cockpit right so you couldn't see outside like he, he just there's no there's no get zero visibility and he, and what he wanted to prove was that you didn't need uh i think you know it, pilots had been like anchored to this idea that the only way to fly was if you could you you know if you, if you just had like full visibility of your surroundings right and and The problem with that was, well, then you couldn't fly when it was at, when it was nighttime and you couldn't fly when it was like foggy out or you had just a limited visibility as a function of the weather. And he did that. And so it like, basically then that unlocked, you know, all these other circumstances in which flying was previously not possible. And, and the point I was making through that analogy was that the analogy that I drew from that was that, well, if you are dependent on deterministic identifiers and deterministic identity and the the flow of deterministic data in order to advertise. Well, then you can only advertise uh, in the placements or, or against the inventory and on the platforms that offer that. But if you don't need that, then you Mm -hmm. can advertise wherever you want. And in on whatever format you want, like literally anything can be an advertisement for you if your, your measurement can accommodate it. Right. And so as you see the, the flow of deterministic data, you know, become more limited be diminished um, or be outright, like foreclosed upon, well, then you need to adapt your measurement uh, to, uh, you know, sort of like probabilistic functionality. And so if, and if you can do that, then then that unlocks a whole lot of opportunities that were previously, um, you know, not available to you. And so I think that is one thing that I'm incredibly optimistic about it. If you, if you, if you're, truly capable of building like probabilistic measurement solutions well then there's no limit to where you can advertise or how um or or how you uh you know how you sort of accommodate that advertising into your um into your analytics infrastructure so i'm really excited about that i'm also really excited about you know i think with deterministic identity you know the, the sort of like default mechanism for um, doing attribution was was in my mind, like, you know, very primitive, right? It was basically like, okay, we've got data set A, data set B, let's join them on, you know, this column, essentially. It's, it's like doing a, like a SQL join and, you know, and, and just merging those, merging those data sets together on the basis of this identity. And I mean, a lot of times that identity was not reliable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, time, and. Yeah. It, it, yeah, a lot of times, and and yeah, so like as and right. and, there, and yeah. that identity became less reliable over time, actually. And so what a lot of companies ended up doing was just using proxies for that identity that were very unreliable, right? And but but gave the illusion of precision, right? So you had a lot of wastage on the basis of like call it fingerprinting, right? So let's say fingerprinting, like so. Well, hey, I've, I, we don't have an email, and we don't have you know uh, some identifier that we know to be deterministic. So let's just do a fingerprint and let's join those. And the way a lot of fingerprinting algorithms work is like, they'll start out with like a number of different inputs. like, so, okay, we can match, you know, all these inputs on, you know, in this in this uh, uh, click stream with all these inputs in this conversion stream, then that's a match, that's an attribution. Well, okay, well we can't make a match. So let's cut a few of the inputs. Uh, mm-hmm. Still no match, let's cut even more. Hey, IP address and, uh, and, and user agent, that's a match. That's an attribution, it's good enough for me. And so you had all these attributions that were being charged for on the basis of like very, very imprecise identity, like ideas of identity. Oh, and yeah. you're just paying for that. Yeah. So I'd rather have, a, a, you know, if I'm going to be paying for imprecision anyway, I'd rather it be statistical imprecision that I can I can uh, gauge, right? Because yeah. if this ad tech company is saying, no, 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 it's very precise. It's, it's pseudo deterministic. So oh, okay. That gives me a lot of confidence that these are like real numbers. Right now, if I can say, look, no, there's, there's an, you know, there's a range here. There's a, there's a probability distribution here. Um, then at least that, uh, disabuses me at this idea that like, oh, that's very precise. And then I can accommodate for that. So instead before it's I like, go, oh, that's very precise. Here's a bunch of money. Now it's like, well, okay, that's not very precise. It's actually kind of fuzzy. It's actually like quite imprecise. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cut my spend down and probably that's more efficient spend because I'm not assuming, that these attributions were deterministically valid, and so th- that was a big problem. That's a big source of wastage, and I'm 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 really excited about that wastage kind of being impossible because you can't even claim that that's like deterministic uh, or pseudo-deterministic attribution anymore. And honestly, I think you know we're heading to a point where it'll just be impossible to even sort of um, you know even even sort of a uh, uh, hint at the idea that you did fingerprinting. I mean, I think we're heading to a yeah. point, especially oh, in iOS, yeah. where you won't even have access yeah. to the IP address at some point.
0: Yeah, and we're saying that, I mean, it, it was um, the latest update, the private click measurement and then the privacy manifests which was just it came out a few months ago i saw this hilarious video on that topic of you know a parody video of oh you know this is a new update and you know this is apple continuing it's continued uh, you know it's crusade against you know tracking on the web and so that to make sure that we're the only ones able to track people you know it's it was very snarky but i think the update and going through privacy manifests, it kind of hints at this future where yeah doing fingerprinting would be if not impossible, not illegal, and to be regulated out, there are a lot of concerns. But it's interesting to hear you say that probabilistic could be a, a new canvas or a new landscape where advertisers can be more dynamic and creative. Uh, you know, I'm very optimistic that this shift would actually lead marketers to become more creative with their content to stand out more online, as opposed to relying on, um, you know, machine learning and you know, analytics and tracking to basically just optimize ad sets, you know? So I think there's, I'm seeing more create, more marketers trying to be more creative so they can stand out, not just rely on precision targeting and tracking. So there's some interesting second order effects there. But Eric, it has been a fascinating conversation we've covered. We went from Europe all the way to Silicon Valley. We've talked about mobile development and then everything that's happening around the ad tech space right now. So thank you for joining me. Um, I want to throw to you, I mean, Mobile Dev Memo, I highly recommend people check it out, subscribe, buy a subscription because it's just an amazing resource uh for this space but where else are you active online where can we find you
1: oh i mean i spend way too much time on twitter uh and uh you know i'm i'm, I'm i've got like a uh I'm, I'm 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 trying to make threads work but <laughs> it's not <laughs> i don't think it's happening uh but uh, i'm you know I'm, I'm i'm investing some time there but but yeah i mean uh, you know across twitter and, and mobile dev memo that's that's the majority of my online time
0: Awesome. Well, we are regularly interviewing people uh, who are featured all the time in the Martech Weekly. Uh, people like Eric who are at the forefront of the industry thinking about the biggest problems and the challenges that face the marketing, advertising, technology industry. Um, if you'd like to uh, read and stay um, on online with us, you can subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Otherwise, we'd love for you to leave a review if you enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for joining me, Eric.
1: Thank you, Juan. Have a nice evening or have a nice day.